Good day, everybody. This is Brandon with 238 Media, picking up with our next installment with our most favorite proto-Trinitarian polemicist, speaking against what has been commonly known as early modalism or some form of it. This is going to be chapter 17, Early Manifestations of the Son of God, as recorded in the Old Testament, rehearsals of his subsequent incarnation. So let somebody know we're about to get started and we're moving along. So we're here with uh, chapter 17 of Tertullian in this instance, and he's starting his polemic off in a very interesting way. He goes on to say uh, in the first paragraph, but you must not suppose that only the works which relate to the creation, which is the creation of the world, were made by the son, but also whatsoever since that time has been done by God. For the father who loved the son and have given him all things in his hand, loves him indeed from the beginning, and from the very first has handed all things over to him. Whence it is written, from the beginning the word was with God, and the word was God. And he, of course, is quoting St. John 1 and 1. To whom is given by the Father all power in heaven and on earth. The Father judges no man but have committed all things, all judgment to the son. And he's quoting again, St. John 5 and 22. From the very beginning, even for when he speaks of all power and all judgment and says that all things were made by him and all things have been delivered to his hands, he allows no exception in respect of time because they would not be all things unless they were the things of all time. Now notice he he's further building his argument that's based upon the previous chapter 16, uh, and he's showing a further argument based upon the distinction of the Godhead here. It is the Son, I notice this, therefore who has been from the beginning administering judgment, throwing down the haughty tower and dividing the tongues, punishing the whole world by the violence of waters, raining upon Sodom and Gomorrah, fire and brimstone as the Lord from the Lord. Now he's quoting in that first portion there, the judgment of throwing down the haughty towers and dividing the tongues. He's talking about the destruction of the Tower of Babel, obviously, the violence of water. He's talking about the Noah's flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, fire and brimstone. And it sounds like he's referring to Genesis um, 19, uh, 34, I believe. When it says the Lord rained down fire from me, uh, Yahweh rained down fire from Yahweh out of heaven, which is to me a bad understanding of an idiomatic expression, which if you look in the NET Bible, it tells you the Lord rained down fire from heaven, from heaven, the Lord rained down fire is just a way of emphasizing where the source of the fire came from. Uh, not, not really a sound argument in my understanding for hit, excuse me, for the next portion for he, it was who at all times came down to hold converse with men from Adam to and on to the patriarchs and the prophets in vision and dreams and mirror and dark sayings 
ever from the beginning laying the foundation of the course of his dispensation, which he meant to follow out to the very least. So he's building the case that all of these theophanies in the Old Testament was actually the son of God appeared. Because remember, in the previous chapter, he laid the foundation that God, the father is invisible. So it is only the son who can be seen, because if he's invisible and he is seen, then that must mean that it must be a person that's outside the father. And I think that's kind of a little bit assumptive. Uh, so he's really showing that all of the interactions with the patriarchs, the major problem with that is that when you go through and take a detailed reading of all of these things, the dispensations in Deuteronomy talks about the promise that he made with Abraham and the same person is now referring that I carried you all the day long, like a man carries his son. And I think that should really be examined. I'm going to, uh, Turn to the book of Deuteronomy to really help bring some context to this is because Tertullian is really setting up his straw man. So if you were to like look in Deuteronomy one and verse six, the Lord, our God spoke to us at Horeb. And that is the instance of Exodus 19 verses one through twenty five. You have stayed in the area of the mountain long enough. Head out and resume your journey. Go occupy the territory. And this is done. Going skipping on down to verse eight. Go occupy the territory that I, the Lord, promised to give your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and to their descendants. So he's the one that promised. Right. To give the land to them. He is the one who's insured them. He is obviously the one who delivered them. And it says in verse 10, the Lord, your God, has increased your population to the point that you now as new. Excuse me, that you are now as numerous as the stars of the sky. Indeed, may the Lord, the God of your ancestors, make your thousand times more numerous than you are now. Now, what is interesting in um, he goes down and I believe verse 21, he affirms that he is the Lord God of your ancestors. Verse 26 says, because the Lord hates us, he brought us out from the land of Egypt to deliver us to them. Right. So he's making it very clear. The same Lord who is the deliverer, the one who did these things. He is the one who's did it by verse 30. The Lord, your God is about to go ahead of you. Now notice the same one who appeared to your ancestors. He will fight for you just as you saw him do in Egypt and in the wilderness. Now notice so far, Tertullian is correct that there has been a singular individual who has purposefully and consistently revealed himself. But I would uh, encourage you to go to Deuteronomy 32 I think there's a lot of benefit there that maybe our friend Tertullian has missed. He says in Deuteronomy 32 and 3, for I will proclaim the name of the Lord. You must acknowledge the greatness of our God. As for the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are just. He is reliable, reliable God who is never unjust. He is fair and upright. His people have been unfaithful to him. They have not acted like notice this his children. This is their sin. Now, notice he's using that paternal language. They are not acting like his singular children. This is the same divine person that has appeared all throughout the Old Testament. He goes on to verse six. This is how you repay the Lord, you foolish and wise people. Is he not your father? So if this is God speaking, how can it not be God the father? Just think about that. I just really want you to let that settle in. Your creator. This ties perfectly with the witness of Isaiah 45. He has made you and established you. Wow. Isn't this interesting? If we even go down to verse 18, you forgot the rock who 
fathered you and put out of mind the God who gave you birth. If this isn't God the Father, I mean, my Lord, we would now have to retreat to the conclusion that we have two divine fathers. We got Jesus as our father, according to Tillian, who was the one of the Old Testament, and God the Father must be God the Grandfather. So this is problematic. Tertullian has built a straw man that's already built on questionable polemics, but now we know that it's built upon a questionable exegesis. He goes on further, resuming with Tertullian's writing, thus, was he ever learning, even as God, to converse with men upon earth, being no other than the word which was to be made flesh? But he was thus learning or rehearsing in order to level for us the way of faith that we may be the more readily able to believe the Son of God had come down into the world. If we knew that times past also something similar had been done for as it was on our account and for our learning that these events are described in the scriptures. So for our sakes also were there, excuse me, were there done upon whom the ends of the world has come. And he's quoting 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. In this way, it was that even that then he knew full well what human feelings and affections were, intending as he always did to take upon him man's actual component substances, body and soul, making inquiry of Adam as if we were ignorant. He goes on to say, where art thou, Adam? And he's quoting Genesis 3 and 9, repenting that he had made man as if he had lacked any foresight, uh, tempting Abraham as if ignorant of what was in man, offended with persons and then reconciled to them. Whatever weakness and imperfections the heretics lay hold of as unworthy of God in order to discredit the creator, not considering that these circumstances are suitable enough for the son who was one day to experience even human sufferings, <clears throat> hunger and thirst and tears and actual birth and real death and in respect of such dispensation made by the father a little less than the angels. But the heretics, and again, he's talking about the modalists, you may be sure will not allow that those things are suitable even to the son of God, which you are imputing to the very father himself. When you pretend that he made himself uh, less than the angels on our account, whereas the scripture informs us that he who was made less was so affected by another, not himself by himself. Now, I want you to notice this middle platonic way of thought that he is really dead set on the fact that God, uh, the father, cannot interact with the created world or that he didn't rather. Tertullian goes on to say, what again, if he was one who was crowned with glory and honor and he another by whom he was so crowned? And he's making an appeal to Psalms eight and six, which is very odd to me uh, that he would do that. The son, in fact, by the father. Moreover, how comes it to pass that the almighty invisible God, whom no man has seen nor can see, he who dwelleth in light unapproachable, he who dwelleth not in temples made with hand from before whose sight the earth trembles and the mountains melt like wax. Who holdeth the whole world in his hand like a nest. He there quotes Isaiah 10 and 14. Now it's interesting he quotes Isaiah uh, there because, you know, Isaiah is a very oneness uh, prophet whose throne is in heaven, whose earth is the footstool, whose footstool is in earth, in whom is every place, but himself is in no place. Who is the utmost bound of the universe? How happens it, I say, 
that he who, though the most high should yet have walked in paradise toward the cool of the evening in quest of Adam and should have shut up the ark after Noah and had entered it. And at Abraham's tent should have refreshed himself under an oak and have called to Moses out of the burning bush and appeared as the fourth in the furnace of the Babylonian monarch. And he's quoting out of the book of Daniel when he talks about the fourth man. Uh, and it's interesting to note that Nebuchadnezzar said he is one like the sons of God. Now, this is a pagan ruler. Why in the world would he know that this is the other person of the Godhead? Just, just bringing context to these assumptions. Unless all of these events had happened as an image, as a mirror, as an enigma of the future incarnation. Surely even these things could not have been believed even of the son of God, unless they had been given us the scriptures. Now it's interesting. He said, we would even believe the son of God did this. If we didn't have this in scripture, the only problem thus far, we do not have these in scripture. These are assumptions Tertullian is making that the text does not support. Possibly also they could not have been believed of the father, even if they had been given in the scripture, since these men bring him down into Mary's womb and set him before Pilate's judgment seat and bury him in the sepulcher of Joseph. Hence, therefore, the error becomes manifest for being ignorant that the entire order of the divine administration has from the very first had its course through the agency of the son. I notice the son is the agency of uh, the father. Again, remember our reflection on Hebrews, God who at sundry times spake in diverse manners or diverse manners to the fathers through the prophets, right? But it is in these last days he's spoken to us through his son. They believe that the father himself was actually seen. According to the scripture we just read in Deuteronomy, it was the father that was seen and held conversed with men and worked and was a thirst and suffered hunger in spite of the prophet who says the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth shall never thirst at all, nor be hungered. Now, if he's trying to contribute this, uh, this interesting statement here, the everlasting Lord, the God of creator, even in a Trinitarian framework, that wouldn't be a good argument because technically God, the son in his divine nature wasn't thirsty. It was uh, the humanity that was thirsty. So that's a non sequitur of an argument from Tertullian in that instance. He goes on to say, as he's concluding his thought in chapter 17, much more shall neither die at any time nor be buried. And therefore that it was uniformly one God, even the father who at all times did himself the things which were really done by him through the agency of the son. And what we would say is that if he is talking about the son as it relates to the humanity, the one that was incarnate in time, the one that came in time, we would agree if you want to call it an incarnational agency, I mean, go for it. I have no problem with that. But when you make this pre-incarnate person, someone separate than God, the father, this is where the entire witness of the Old Testament departs from you in a violent way. So this has been chapter 17. Going over some insights, please pay attention to the scripture references we give. Not one of the scriptural references that Tertullian gave in chapter 17 can prove that this is talking about a second divine person, but rather a clear unbiased reading of the Old Testament, these verses in their context so clearly demonstrate that this is the singular unipersonal God who we have come to know in the incarnation as the man Christ Jesus. The Lord bless you in Jesus' mighty name.